is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu today, angry truckers and the Super Bowl. The Homeland Security Department issuing a warning to law enforcement agencies that a group of truckers planning a protest of COVID vaccine mandates. Now, it could start as soon as this weekend right here in L.A., where the Super Bowl, of course, is being played. If it happens, it would spawn from a big ongoing truckers protest over vaccine mandates that's happening in Canada. Truckers there disrupting life in the country's capital and even at some border crossings into the U.S. We'll go in uh, depth into what really is behind this protest and inflation. Yeah, we've all noticed it. It is soaring higher and higher, and it is taking mortgage rates with them, making buying a home even more difficult. Bob Saget's death raising questions about what appear to be minor head injuries, how those injuries could be much more serious than what uh, many of us uh, would think. If you go for a nice long walk, lots of exercise after you get a vaccine, it might boost your antibody levels, so it might benefit you in the long run. Go for a walk. There's the pun, long it's run. It's easy, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, losing weight could be simple if you sleep more. There's a new study about that. There's less time to eat if you're sleeping. <laughs> and then uh, all the uh, sharp-looking Super Bowl fields over the years, thanks to one guy, the god of sod. He's been overseeing the groundskeeping at every single Super Bowl, including this one. So we'll talk to him. So, you know, of those two stories, the one where you're supposed to, like, walk for 90 minutes. Or sleep. Or sleep. Which I one? Like, yeah. I like the second story Exactly. Better. We'll get into it. Let's. let's where are you going? <laughs> to bed. Why? Yeah. To lose weight. <laughs> it's a good excuse as any. Let's start with that trucker protest and the Homeland Security warning. Robert McDonald is a major event security expert, former Secret Service agent and criminal justice professor at the University of New Haven. Robert, thanks for being with us. So, um... This sounds like potentially uh, an ominous uh, event, uh, this trucking protest that, as we mentioned, and we'll go into more detail a bit later, began really in Canada, but is seemingly spreading here. How much of a problem could it be in the L.A. area, especially to the uh, Super Bowl on Sunday? Well, good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. I uh, appreciate the time to be with you. Uh, You know, the one nice part about your Super Bowl event uh, being designated a SEER 1 event by the Department of Homeland Security is that, you know, planning for this event has been going on for a number of months. Uh, there have been, I'm sure, a number of tabletops and communications exercises to make sure that everybody's on the same page. So the nice part is you're going to have a very large infrastructure of security in place for your event already, as opposed to the truckers just coming to the LA area without that type of event going on. So you're gonna have a uh, multi-agency command center already set up where communications are gonna be instantaneous as to what potentially is heading your way. You know, the Super Bowl uh, traditionally has always been a target for terrorism or human trafficking or other types of types of criminal activity. Now here's an, an added uh, ripple uh, of another uh, issue that's uh, in front of us right now. And the truckers are gonna try to use that to uh, highlight their cause uh, while this is going on this weekend in your area. Which is exactly what you know some of us here were thinking earlier. Okay, yes, it's great that we plan for these months and years out, and then you cut off the airspace and you're watching for terrorism, all the usual stuff, right? But was trucking right. protest on the radar? I mean, what happens when a bunch of big rigs come and close down the freeway on the way to the game? Right. It, uh, it probably wasn't on the radar till about 10 days ago, specifically. Yeah. Uh, however, other uh, things that might have happened have been talked about, whether it's just protesters, you know, the national special security events. And this is just one tier below that. 
uh, was created in 1998 for large national events like this that were drawing protests or political type protests. So these type of events now for 25 years have been coordinated uh, every year. You know, you, uh, I think, are having a number of events coming up in the next six or seven years. You had the All-Star Game for M uh, MLS. You've got the Super Bowl. Uh, you've got the MLB All-Star Game this year, I think, and some U.S. Open and World Cups coming down the road as well as the Olympics. So this is actually a good precursor for the different things that uh, are going to be hosted by your area uh, over the next number of years. But, Robert, I'm curious, how do security folks handle the potential for something like, uh, you know, a bunch of trucks, uh, you know, perhaps within the law, slowing down sufficiently enough sure. that it would clog major roadways, but they're not really doing anything that's illegal. It's not quite the same, right, as some right. high-tech terrorism thing where you, sure. you know, diffuse the bomb or something like that. Yeah, very true. Uh, my bet would be that somebody uh, involved in the coordination of the security program out there in L.A. is reaching out to the truckers unions or the truckers group to you know, maybe begin some discussions and say, hey, how can we all work together to allow you to get your message out and to be seen and heard without necessarily totally shutting down our Super Bowl situation for the week? So my guess is that they're looking to start some dialogue, find some areas where the, the truckers can set up their protests or uh, perhaps give up a certain road or two to let them shut down to get their message out. When and in turn, not shut down the whole uh, weekend or week week long event of the Super Bowl. Roberts McDonald, major events security experts, professor, University of New Haven. That uh, big trucker protest we told you about in Canada is creating problems in the country's capital, Ottawa. Truckers are all over the streets. The protests have been you know, spilled over to border crossings into the U.S. and could even disrupt automobile production. With us now is Mark Day, news anchor and talk show host for City News Ottawa. He's been on the ground reporting on the trucker protest. Mark, thanks for being with us. So what is going on there? Well, I can, what I can tell you is the honking has stopped after a court injunction, but the protesters are still here. The trucks are still parked uh, in front of Parliament Hill in downtown Ottawa. We're now into our 14th day of these protests uh, since they began. So, you know, two weeks in, and it doesn't look like we're going to see an end to any of this uh, in the coming days. That's unless police uh, show a use of force, which they've been, uh, at this point, uh, hesitant to apply. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's pretty much shut down the whole downtown core of the nation's capital here in Canada. How many truckers and their trucks versus how many other people showing up? I mean, numbers-wise, what are we talking? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the first day, that first weekend when they arrived here, they came in from all different angles and different uh, areas of the country, one from British Columbia, from the west, and they would meet up with trucks along the way in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and then arriving here in Ontario. And then we also had trucks coming from the east coast. Uh, we're coming from Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, those east coast uh, provinces, and also from southern Ontario, uh, the Windsor area, and they moved up and all kind of arrived here at the same time in Ottawa that first weekend 14 days ago. At that point, the chief of police in Ottawa estimated about 15,000 trucks had arrived. And, I mean, thousands of people descended upon uh, downtown Ottawa. That continued for a few days. And then slowly it would dissipate. Uh, the protesters who would come in to support the trucker convoy would leave the city. And it would uh, leave about, you know, 150 to 200 trucks uh, still in the downtown streets, blocking off those major uh, intersections of downtown Ottawa. And then last weekend, uh, again, we had another, uh, you know, 
thousands of people arriving downtown, uh, probably more than the first weekend uh, to protest on the Hill. They said a bouncy castles for kids. Uh, I mean, there's food that is being given out. It's a, it's a real festive type party atmosphere, if you can imagine. Right, but Mark, uh, Mark have... what, what I don't get, uh, and maybe a lot of people listening don't, yeah. is, and correct me if I'm wrong, this began ostensibly as a protest for vaccine mandates for truckers coming across the border, right, into into Canada. But aren't most of the truckers vaccinated anyway? And, and so what is this really about? Well, that's a good question. Ninety percent of the truckers in Canada are vaccinated. And when they started out with this uh, with this protest, uh, a lot of the government officials, the liberal government of Canada, the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, pointed out it's only 10 percent of truckers who can't get vaccinated, who don't want to get vaccinated. Ninety percent are. Um, but it's kind of a moot point. Even if the Canadian government were to lift the vaccination mandate at the border, not allowing them to cross, it still wouldn't make a difference because uh, the Biden administration has implemented their own. A vaccination mandate at the border. So those truckers still wouldn't be able to cross the border into the United States. So, you know, they looked at it as, a, you know, kind of a moot point. But what it has grown into is much more larger than that, uh, where people, you know, are just at a point after two years where they want these mandates to end. And province by province, like state by state here in Canada, it's those provincial uh, premiers that have control over the restrictions, the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates. That has nothing to do with the federal government. But the reason they're in Ottawa is because they want the prime minister of Canada to uh, eliminate all uh, restrictions, all those mandates at the border. So there's so many layers to it. That's, that's the difficult thing for a lot of people maybe outside the country to understand. Mark Day, news anchor, talk show host, City News, Ottawa. Coming up, inflation is ballooning, even the price of balloons going up. (laughs) Uh, Right now, just about everything is more expensive, thanks to inflation. Consumer prices up 7.5% from this time last year. Buying a house costing more, mortgage rates up, um, creeping slowly toward 4%. Guy Baker, Managing Director at Wealth Teams Alliance in Irvine. Guy, thanks for being here. So, yeah, another one of these reports today. Uh, How do you read it? Still on this track, still going up, and more than what was expected? Yeah, the, the report just came out yesterday, and uh, the stock market tilted a little bit on that. It was uh, six tenths of a percent for uh, for January, which is you know a seven point two percent annualized rate, which is the highest compounded rate in forty years. So here is the the problem, right, that the Fed uh, faces coming up. Uh, it's saying that it's going to raise interest rates. Some people now are thinking it may raise them more than they initially indicated, and that would be to try to bring down inflation, right? But it runs a risk of also creating a recession. Well, yeah, and that's the unfortunately the problem that the Fed's facing, because if they raise rates too much too fast, it could definitely bring on uh, a recession. But if they don't do something to bring up interest rates, it's going to destroy some of the institutions in America because they, you know, we've been struggling with low interest rates for, what, five, six years now at least. And while all this gets figured out, until we really start to see clear signs of something coming under control, the market anxiety is just going to continue, right? Well, that's true. But you know what's interesting? A lot of people don't know this. If you put $1 in the stock market, in the S&P, let's say, it would be worth about $11,000 today. If you put that $1 into the S&P, but you took out all inflation, it would be worth $800. So 
the stock market really grows based on inflation because it drives up the income of the corporations. So wait, so how come whenever I look at my 401k, it's really <laughs> you depressing? Just, you just see the cliff that's I, I just, falling down. I just see it going down, yeah. Well, it probably has something to do with your allocation because, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of 401k plans don't necessarily have the right choices in them or they're not put together the right way. But if you invest in markets and, and stay with it over a long period of time and you have the right allocation, you'll do fine. We've also got the situation, though, where, you know, some companies are talking about how wages and, and raises have happened, but that's not keeping up. So people aren't noticing in that scenario. They're just noticing at the grocery store that everything is way more expensive and it's not coming out in the wash. Well, that's true. Uh, it takes a while for everything to catch up. But over time, you know, it's law of supply and demand competition. Uh, you know, if, if the companies are making more money, they're going to have to pay more for their talent. So... So in in the near term, and I'm trying to figure out how to define near term, let's say the next year, I'm guessing it's reasonable to expect that we're all going to be paying a lot more for things like food, housing, uh, cars. Yeah, except that I think you also have to factor in that most people's budgets you know, 60 to 70% of most people's budgets are fixed, right? You know, my house payment's not going to go up. My car payment's not going to go up. I may see my insurance costs go up a little bit. So where inflation really impacts you is in your uh, consumables, you know, clothes, food, um, you know, entertainment, those types of things. So if you don't wear clothes and don't eat, you're okay. You just don't buy anything. (laughs) You're okay. I'm around naked, I know. TMI over yeah. there um, for mortgage rates uh, since, you know, they have been creeping up. They have been rising. But but at first, buyers seemed sort of unfazed. Have they started to take notice and, and pull back now? You know, I think it's starting. Um, you know, I think the mortgage rates hit a bottom uh, probably six, eight months ago. Uh, and now they're starting to crank up. But if you look at what it, what mortgage rates were 15, 20 years ago, they were five and a half, six, seven percent. So we're still way below where the interest rates were for years and years. So it's still a great time to buy. Guy Baker, Managing Director, Wealth Teams Alliance in Irvine. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, we know, now know how comedian Bob Saget uh, died. His family says he apparently hit his head accidentally while in a hotel room in Orlando last month. They say he probably didn't think too much of it, went to sleep, and never woke up. It seems many people underestimate the severity of head injuries and the damage they could do before it's too late. Dr. Garney Barker-Darian is a neuro, uh, neurosurgeon and associate professor of neuroscience and neurosurgery at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So I think when most people read that last night and heard about it uh, and how he died, Bob Saget, uh, a lot of people must have gone, really? Uh, how can you do that? What kind of injury would be sufficient enough that you wouldn't really think of going to the hospital maybe, maybe or, or calling for medical help and you just go to bed and then die? 
Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. It really depends on the severity of the head trauma. Uh, typically, say in a car accident, it would be very obvious somebody has a head injury and knows to go to the hospital. But some people, uh, certainly if, if you hit your head on a door or, you know, on a cabinet or something like that, you may not think about it too much. Um, as we get older, some of the vessels in the brain tend to get a little bit more frail, and it can cause some bleeding with some minor trauma like that. And so signs that I would say would be important to uh, pay attention to would be progressive headaches, uh, symptoms that may not be typical of your usual headaches, say uh, really throbbing headaches or other signs like vision changes, hearing changes, weakness on one side. But those are things that I would pay attention to. And we don't know about uh, Mr. Saget, but uh, if somebody is taking blood thinners, uh, including aspirin, you know, those would be reason to pay a little bit more close attention to those types of symptoms. And, and if there are any concerns, go straight to the hospital. And what happens in that situation? I mean, something bursts and then it bleeds out. And since it's your head, it's it's got nowhere to go. Yeah, because the, the brain is contained in the skull, which is basically a closed box, the blood can accumulate. And even, it doesn't have to be a lot of blood. We're talking a couple of few ounces of blood. It can accumulate and push on the normal brain, and if it gets into enough pressure, it can start uh, causing the brain to slip into a coma or cause other symptoms like seizures that can result in situations like what Mr. Saget suffered. Is it possible, though, to, you, you had mentioned hitting your head on a, a car door or a cabinet, something that I have done many, many times, which may explain many things. <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but, yes. I, but I, yeah, Mike's How agreeing. hard was that hit? Uh, pretty hard. Uh, but, I mean, could you not notice that there is, because you're taking off some symptoms, but could you actually not have any noticeable symptoms, except, you know, that you felt the pain of banging your head, and then... Like I, you know, go to sleep. Apparently and enough not, to and, go to. I mean, it, it hurts, but enough that you can go to sleep fine. Yeah, right. Exactly. Know? I mean, can that happen? It's possible. I wouldn't say that's the norm, uh, but it is possible that you can hit your head hard enough to cause bleeding in the brain, but just maybe a mild to moderate headache, and you just kind of shrug it off. I would say that uh, in those cases, the bleeding may not be as severe, but if, if you had a um, significant amount of bleeding that is going to cause you to slip into a coma, you're likely going to have other symptoms associated with it. Can you see anything? I mean, I guess if you hit the top of your head, it's under your hair, so you can't tell. But, I mean, if there's like a splotch under your skin or something, is that like a sign? Not really, no. Many times the the scalp, the scalp, the skull looks fine. There, you really don't see much bleeding. Sometimes you'll see a bruise on the scalp, but that really doesn't mean too much. We see lots of patients with big shiners, and you, you scan their brains, and they're completely fine. So it really, what what you see on the outside doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on on the inside. Okay, so here comes what might be the most difficult question to answer. So somebody bangs their head in the car or wherever. Uh, but they don't have the obvious symptoms, double vision or anything like that. I mean, do you just go running to the ER to get a... Give me a CAT yeah, scan. Give me a CAT scan. For I mean, $10,000. Yeah, I mean, how do you know when to go? Yeah, so I would say you don't necessarily need to go to the hospital if you just hit your head. That happens all the time. But if you do notice any progressive symptoms or if there's a family member that notices that individual is not acting or behaving correctly, then they should go in to get checked out because that could be a, a sign of things to come. And the sooner we catch it in the hospital, the quicker we can reverse things and get back to, back to health.
Dr. Garni Barkudarian, neurosurgeon, associate professor, Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. You know, I think about it as like hotels because it's unfamiliar territory, especially yeah. at night. Some of them have like the overhang cabinets uh-huh. near the bed or something. Yeah, you yeah. can just pop right up and bang your head because this is not where you normally live. You yeah. Know? Oh, it's scary. So uh, after you get or you got your COVID or flu shot, what, what did you do after you got it? Do you remember? I called my mom. I said, I got vaccinated. Oh, and I- then I took a walk. You took a walk. Yeah. yeah. See, I did what most people in L.A. do. I went into my car, <laughs> yes. and I drove off. Yes. That's what I did. Well, yeah, I guess I drove home <laughs> first. Uh, but maybe you should take a run or a walk after your vaccine. New study finds people who exercised for 90 minutes. I only did like 20, though, so I guess I missed the mark. Yeah. Uh, right after their shot, produced more antibodies than people who did not. Marion Kohut oversaw the study, member of the Nano Vaccine Institute at Iowa State University. Marion, thanks for being here. So what could it be about, you know, 90 minutes out there walking that could make this work better for people? Right. Well, that is the million dollar question that we hope to answer in future uh, studies. So this was really preliminary work, but I would say it was very promising in that 90 minutes of exercise across two different flu vaccines and the COVID vaccine uh, enhanced antibody response four weeks uh, later. And we also did this in mice and saw the same same thing. So in the study, were people sent out to walk right as soon as they got vaccinated or, I mean, can you go later in the day or the next day or do you not know? Good, great question. Um, you know, we were trying to control everything. So we had everybody start exercising within 15 to 30 minutes after getting the shot. Um, of course, it depends where you were and could you get to a, lot, a walking location that's safe. So uh, we were within that 30 minute time frame, though, after the vaccine and um Participants began 90 minutes of what we call light to moderate intensity exercise. So a brisk walk for most people, if you're really fit, maybe a easy jog. Okay, so something to get your heart rate up is, is the idea. Absolutely. Okay. And is this, you know, I, I know you've mentioned we're waiting for more studies, but there is some sort of general immune system exercise, cellular response. When you do exercise, it changes things in your body. Is that kind of where we are with this? Right, right. And there's probably not one single factor that contributes. There are a lot of changes with exercise, metabolic changes, blood flow, lymph flow, neuroendocrine changes, all of those can impact immune response. So it's probably um, several different mechanisms that contribute to this enhancement. So, uh, and again, I I realize because you're doing an experiment and you had that control, so you set 90 minutes, but is there any logically, would it still work with 60? Because I'm actually trying to negotiate here. (laughs) If I run faster, (laughs) can I do 30? Yeah, Yeah. this is an hour enough. (laughs) Right. You're not alone. We all want to do the least we can and get the most out of it, right? Uh A couple crunches and call it a day. (laughs) So um, we didn't test 60 in humans. We tested 45, and 45 was not enough. Um, And so... Maybe 60 will work, maybe 75 minutes. So in future studies, you hope to really define that. Can you get away with less than 90? Uh, But for now, we can't say. Yeah. When we talk about the antibody booster, the immunity booster, how do we characterize or, you know, apply that? Is that enough to, to keep you from falling seriously ill or getting a breakthrough? Or is it just, you know what, let's be happy that it's something and uh, we're all kind of playing luck of the draw lottery with this anyways? Right. Great question. So um, is that 
improvement in antibody, is that enough to confer better protection against the infection? So we are following people who were in the study over time, um, and we hope to have a little bit of insight to that, although you really need to do a study with thousands of participants probably to adequately address that. But we, we will look at that, and we'll be following up and reporting on that, as well as how long does this benefit last? Is it just four weeks, or can it carry out to six months, nine months? Um, and those are important questions that we'd like to know how long that protection might last. I mean, is it logical to presume that this effect would work with any vaccine? Well, we've seen it with flu vaccine, um, two different flu vaccines, and we've seen it with COVID. Um, so, and those are two different types of vaccines. One is, you know, killed attenuated um, virus, and the other is uh, an mRNA-based vaccine. So they're different vaccine platforms. Um, so... Can we extend that to other vaccines? Maybe. We'll see. But it's promising that it worked across three different vaccines. So when you start getting to studying five minutes of exercise, <laughs> will, you, will you keep me in mind? <laughs> You'd like to volunteer. Yeah, so we, yeah. I'll, I'll take the stairs I'll up volunteer. instead of the elevator. Yeah, I'll volunteer. Call it a day. <laughs> right. Well, some other studies have looked at exercising the muscle in which you were immunized. Oh. Um, and, and that data is kind of mixed, though. Sometimes... Oh a benefit, sometimes not. So um, it's a little bit hard to say. My friend, um, speaking of, is convinced that, like, she, you know, did arm circles in that arm and yeah. that it would hurt less afterwards. Is that a thing or no? Uh, I would say that's a, that's a, uh, maybe an urban legend, but um, <laughs> there's just not really great data. We did actually look at side effects, though, to see is that amount of exercise going to impact side effects, either positively or negatively. In our study, we saw absolutely no difference between the exercise and the control, but there are a couple other studies that have reported um, slightly fewer side effects with exercise around the time of vaccination. Okay, but also don't like, you know, go so crazy that you, you know, can't do anything else, right? Because there can be too much. Don't don't overdo it. Because, I mean, marathon runners sometimes get sick after their marathon. So don't go run like 10 miles. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, you, yeah. you, can, you can overdo it, right? Yeah. Right, right. Well, we looked at that in mice. We didn't ask people to do that. <laughs> but we had our mice, mice go three hours, and that was dropping off. It was kind of back to, to uh, baseline. It wasn't worse than no exercise, but it wasn't any better. So there's probably a tipping point that, too much is, yeah. is not going to help. So, right. wait, you, you did it with mice because if you did it with people, they'd go, no way. Yeah, I'm going to get off this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing this for three off hours. The Sorry, yeah. going home. Thanks for the shot. Um, <laughs> Marion Kohut oversaw this study, member of the Nano Vaccine Institute, Iowa State University. All right, we'll find that sweet spot as low it, as it can go for you. Five minutes, 10 max. <laughs> max. 10 max. Down the street for coffee yeah. and back. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. We've been searching for decades for the easiest way to lose weight with the least amount of effort. That's kind of your thing, right? That's my thing. <laughs> yeah, that's my thing. The show is synergy, right? Yeah. Uh, so far, you know, the advice really is uh, eat less and then exercise more. But what if there's something else? Yeah. By the way, that's the pattern to almost all the stories we do. If it's good for me, <laughs> that's <laughs> yes, good. That's good. <laughs> that's what works. Yeah. But, but what if you could lose weight just by sleeping more? Now, who wouldn't want to... Do that. It turns out, apparently you can. A new study finds that people who sleep longer tend to eat fewer calories. With us is the study's author, Dr. Esra Tosali, who directs the Sleep Research Center at the University of Chicago. Doctor, thanks for being 
with us. I, I mean, I'm sure it's more complicated uh, than it sounds, but uh, on the surface, it sounds pretty simple and logical. If you don't, you know, if you're not awake, you're not going to eat. And if you don't eat, you're going to lose weight. There's less time to eat cookies when you're snoozing. <laughs> exactly. But is, it, is, there must be more to it than that, or is there? There is. There is. Hello. Um, so basically, we knew from laboratory studies that sleep loss stimulates uh, appetite-regulating hormones, increases cravings for sugar and junk food, and increasing the risk for weight gain. But what we didn't know is whether we can do anything about this in real life. So therefore, we conducted our study, which shows that getting sufficient sleep could lower the number of calories you eat every day. Uh, we did not necessarily examine the mechanisms in our study, uh, but uh, most likely explanation for less calories uh, eaten uh, could be that there are changes in these appetite-regulating hormones. For example, ghrelin, a hormone secreted by your stomach, uh, could be better regulated, decreased, so gives you less hunger cues, as well as changes in brain regions that we call um, um, reward centers that makes you crave for a certain type of foods, potentially junk foods. And that could be better regulated when you're fully rested. Okay, so it's not so much, you know, get more sleep, a few more hours, and you'll magically lose weight. It's don't be sleep-deprived because when you are, your body is not in the sink it should be, and you're more likely to get these cravings and go and overeat or, or you know, reach for something that isn't super healthy. Correct. You're, you're, by sleep-depriving yourself, you're altering also metabolic pathways beyond just um, – uh, staying less in bed. Now, does it matter, and maybe, I don't know if the study uh, looked at this, does it matter if you uh, naturally try to get more sleep or if you take some, some medication to induce sleep? Does that change anything? Of course. Uh, I would say that the natural sleep is the best sleep. Uh, however, you can help get help from medications to initiate your sleep. Um, it's not the same type of sleep that you would be getting from medications. Potentially, uh, the one of the most important part of sleep is the deep sleep state that we, we call slow-wave sleep. Uh, that would be, uh, with some medications, reduced and not to the same level you would get from natural sleep. How much can we quantify, like a per day, or or what did you find in terms of how much people actually lost when they were sleeping like they were supposed to, or how much, you know, in excess of calories were they not taking in suddenly? Two hundred and seventy kilocalories per day. That's what we found uh, that our subject, our um, uh, participants, when they uh, were getting sufficient sleep, they would lower. Um, their calorie intake by 270 kilocalorie per day, which is substantial when you think about weight loss. This would translate roughly uh, 26 pounds over three years. So we're talking in, in terms of like, I don't know, if there's a way to sort of translate that into typical food, is that because they're sleeping, they're eating, I don't know, like two less cookies or something like that or what? Chocolate bars, cookies, you could, you could say that, uh, 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 a few of them, yes. Yeah. All right. 
get rid of the Snickers because you went to bed. Uh, Dr. Hmm. Ezra Tazali directs the Sleep Research Center at the University of Chicago. I mean, it, it also kind of works, you know, backwards the first way that she said, too, I guess. Because if, if, if anyone had, like, a calorie counter and then they run out yeah. at, like, 7 p.m., what yeah. are you going to do? Yeah. I so, can't. Yeah, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm out of room today. <laughs> well, all right. So uh, so now we know, you know, you learn something every day. So now we, we think that if you exercise yes. for like 90 minutes exercise after you get a COVID shot, you're better. This is and now then, a health program. Right. <laughs> there That's you our, go, folks. There you go. Exercise and sleep. When you turn on the TV for the Super Bowl and you see the field, do you ever wonder how they get it to look so good? Well, you can thank one man, basically, George Toma has been overseeing that work for each and every Super Bowl. Yeah, the god of sod. The sod father. He's still going strong, making sure the field at SoFi is up to Super Bowl standards, as his son Ryan with him. We're going to talk to both of them now. Uh, George, to you first. Uh, how long have you been doing all this? Well, actually, I'm 93 years old, and I've been doing this now for 81 years, and this is my 56th Super Bowl. So how did it all begin for you? Well, actually, I'm a coal miner from Pennsylvania, and my father died when I was 10 years old. So I had to get a job on a job on a vegetable farm, 10 cents an hour, 10 hours a day, six days a week. Uh, high school, Bill Beck made me the head groundkeeper for the Wilkes-Barre Indians. Then I went on from there, went to the Korean War. In '57, working with the Detroit Tigers and George, listening to your your resume, it is incredibly impressive, uh, and I'm actually envious because I can't remember half the jobs I've done, and that you remember all of that is great. Why do you well, still want to do it, though? I mean, is it well, just a habit or what? I just gives me something to do. You know what I mean? And Pete Rozelle came to Kansas City. They merged and. He says, what's the difference? They asked him what the difference in play was. He said he didn't see too much difference in play, but he never seen such a beautiful, outstanding playing field. And Pete Roselle asked me to do the first Super Bowl. And he said, George, it's your field. You put any, do anything you want to do. Make your own logo, put whatever you want. And that's what I did. And from that first one, here I'm at, at 56. <laughs> that's so great. How much has changed? I imagine you were working with a pretty small budget at the first one, based on what you've got well, now, which is, like, me, incredible. Well, with me in Kansas City, we didn't have no budget at all. We never spent a $1,000 a year on the field, never resought it, and we had the best field in all sports. So the early Super Bowls, say, t up to 12, we didn't spend a $1,000 uh, on the field for those first 12 Super Bowls. Today we're spending maybe seven hundred fifty thousand. I'm here looking <laughs> over, looking over the Cincinnati Bengals practice fields. There's three hundred fifty thousand dollars setting out there. So, George, I, I would imagine after all of these decades of doing this, you've picked up a couple of tricks along the way and secrets. What's the most important thing in in your view and your experience? to make sure well, that the playing field is, is just top-notch? Well, in all my years, my motto is do the job and then some. The cheapest insurance for an athlete from preschool to the professional level is a good, safe playing field. That's the safest, the cheapest insurance. 
from there you give the fans in the stands and the fans on TV a field of beauty, and that's it. How does it look to you out there at SoFi, and, and, and do you like the place? I like the place here. I, I like uh, the Los Angeles area. area. I did two Super Bowls in the Coliseum. My favorite uh, stadium is the Roll Bowl. And this is the easiest Super Bowl of all 56 we have done. The reasons why is the ground crew at SoFi Stadium is so good. They're the best ground crew that i ever seen in my 81 years in the game. They're the best painters i ever seen in my 81 years in the game. And we didn't have to do anything to that field. They're down there on their hands and knees with their fingernails, scratching in rubber, brushing it with brooms. And I never seen such an outstanding, dedicated uh, ground crew than they have at SoFi Stadium. And this is the easiest Super Bowl we ever had because of that ground crew. How long are you going to keep doing this? Uh, to the Lord says that's it. Uh, I believe in the Lord, and the Lord has helped me on so many things. And uh, so many people helped me. There's no George Soma. Nobody ever worked for me. They all worked with me. And there's fingerprints from people all over the world that I've been is on all the events that I do. Well, George, we're glad you're uh, watching over that field, and uh, thanks for talking to us. Well, thank you to all your people out there. May all your good fortunes be as numerous as blades of grass and then some seed, the gift of life. <laughs> it's great. Thanks so good much. Advice. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. All right, let's get uh, Ryan on the phone, George's son. Uh, Ryan... He is a riot. Uh, yeah, he's a, it takes a village, that's for sure. And have you worked with him these last few years? And if so, what's what's that like? Or just when you go to a game with him, you know, and he's, uh, you know, God Assad, and, and he walks in and he's doing the field and he's 93. I mean, what's going through your head watching your dad? Uh, he, he's a celebrity pretty much wherever he goes. I mean, everybody knows him from the commissioner down to the janitor in every stadium we go to. He makes friends with everybody, you know, security guards and uh, TV people celebrities it's uh it's quite the spectacle to watch him walk into a building yeah and it doesn't sound like he's slowing down i mean he must be at his age but but is he physically this year is the first year he's kind of physically slowed down at 93 but uh the brain is still there it's it's, uh it's going a million miles a minute he's still got it up there and the field look good to you like it looks good to him uh i yeah uh, so far is absolutely amazing it's uh you know 100 feet below ground level which is very cool you know with the airplanes and stuff but uh you know you're inside but you're outside the transparent roof is amazing so very very beautiful stadium we're pretty happy with it awesome well thanks for talking to us uh, thank your dad for us again all right cheers y'all ryan toma and then uh george before him 93 years uh young we yeah say, out there doing it for more than 80 years. 80 years he's the longest working nfl league member because he's been around this long yeah, and and I see you know if you go online, uh, you can see he's got pictures of you name the celebrity, right? And he has a picture with that person. Yeah, he was great. And then if you missed yesterday's, we had yesterday's show. We had uh, Don Crispin, Kenny Bunkport, uh, Maine. That's right. Who is part of the Never Miss Club? Has so gone to every, every single, single Super Bowl. Him you know, and a couple other guys. You know, actually, the thought just occurred to me. I, I bet you they know one another. I'm sure they do. Because right, I mean, you know, he went. The guy yesterday went every single one. Mm-hmm. And and George has has 
attended to the field. No doubt we will see one. them in the uh, you know the pregame coverage. They should have dinner together. Them. We should bring them together and have dinner. Let's do it. Let's yeah. go. Super Bowl weekend. <laughs> Got aside, never miss club. All right, that's in depth for the day. We'll be back tomorrow.